You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Body IO FM with your host, Kiefer, and co host, Dr. Rocky Patel. Hello, Kiefer. And uh, we always mention our sponsors, Hylete Athletic Wear. Luckily, we only have one, so we don't have to go through too many of those. And uh, you can find more information on how to purchase their clothing from the main page of the website. And I'm going to let Dr. Uh, Rocky introduce today's guests because they've actually chatted before, and then uh, we'll go from there. So today's guest, uh, Kiefer, is Dr. Stephen Gundry. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon. He practices in Palm Springs, California. He is the founder and director for the Center for Restorative Medicine in Palm Springs, and he's a director of the International Heart and Lung Institute in Palm Springs as well. Um, He's a well-known cardiothoracic surgeon. He's been um, the head uh, of the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery at Loma Linda University in the past, as well as their program director for cardiothoracic surgery. Dr. Gundry, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. Um, can you maybe give us a little bit of a short blurb here about yourself, how you got to where you are uh, in terms of your own personal health in your clinic? Sure. Um, I, I had a special major uh, as an undergraduate at Yale University in human evolutionary biology, uh, where I looked at environmental factors and genetic factors that took a great ape and turned it into a human. and. Um, I had a master's thesis on that, and uh, then I decided to go to medical school and uh, became a uh, a fairly famous heart surgeon, and uh, I was uh, also uh, famous for doing infant and pediatric heart transplants, uh, so did a lot of research in immunology, transplant immunology. So about uh, 15 years ago now, uh, I was famous, among other things, for operating on people who uh, nobody else wanted to operate on. And I was referred to a gentleman from Miami, Florida, who was in the book called Big Ed. And Big Ed was 48 years old, had inoperable heart disease. And he'd gone around the country like these folks usually do, looking for surgeons or cardiologists to take them on. And He spent about six months going to the various centers where we look at folks like this, and he eventually got to me when everybody else had turned him down. And I looked at his angiogram, uh, which was all his blood vessels were pretty much clogged up, and agreed with everybody else who'd seen him that I wasn't going to do him any good. And he basically said, well, look, I've been on a diet for the last six months, and I went to a health food store, and I bought a bunch of supplements, and I'm swallowing them, and I've lost 45 pounds, and maybe I did something. And I was a big fat guy at that time, and I said, well, good for you uh, for losing weight, but that's not going to do anything to your heart, and I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine. Uh, I really said that. (laughs) I think we've all said that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he said, well, look, you know, I've come all this way. Why don't we get another angiogram and move me, move me of my heart and let's see what I did. So we did. And this guy had cleaned out 50% of the blockages in his coronary arteries in six months' time. And I was so delighted uh, because now there was a place to uh, put 
bypasses, and I actually the next day did a five-vessel bypass on it. Now, because I'm a researcher, I, I said, uh, give me that bag of supplements and tell me what you did in your diet. And looking at his supplements, uh, he was swallowing a bunch of supplements that I was using down in the lab to uh, keep hearts alive for 48 hours uh, for heart transplant after the animal had been declared clinically dead for an hour, not beating. And I was giving them through the veins and arteries of the heart, and it never occurred to me to, me to swallow them. And when I looked at the diet he had constructed for himself, it read almost word for word like the ancient human diet that I had researched uh, in my thesis. So I called my parents down in San Diego and said, do you happen to have my thesis laying around? And they basically said, yes, it's in the shrine. And um, <laughs> I love so, your humility, uh, Dr. Gundry. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I said, send it up to me. So uh, I, I could yo-yo diet on every diet known to mankind, the cabbage soup diet, the Atkins diet, the egg diet. Uh, but I was obese, uh, metabolic syndrome, hypertension, migraines, and uh, I was running 30 miles a week doing half power lifting. And I thought that was rather odd. So long story short, I started swallowing a ton of supplements that I had researched in the lab and put myself on this diet that I had described 30 years before. And I lost 50 pounds my first year, and I subsequently lost another 20 pounds. And so I started putting this diet on my patients at Loma Linda that I had operated on. And lo and behold, um, their blood pressure went away, their diabetes went away. And so after about a year of doing this, uh, I looked at myself in the mirror one day, and my wife calls it Black Friday. And I said, I can't do this anymore as a heart surgeon. I know how to reverse heart disease. So I resigned my position at Loma Linda and uh, set up uh, a center in Palm Springs and also in uh, Santa Barbara, California, where uh, we basically teach people how to reverse whatever disease they walk in with. And we're, we're pretty good at it. So there you go. Wow. That's a great introduction story. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious how you ended up at well, I, I've got a couple questions. So Loma Linda is, for those who don't know, like a vanguard of vegetarianism. And did you, while you were there, uh, were those, was that the dietary, the predominant dietary recommendation that you were making uh, to patients there? Or, you know, did it just, you just happened to be there and you know, dealt well, no, with it or, yeah, according. I'm not an Adventist, but um, I'm actually one of the few uh, chairmen uh, who is not an Adventist um, at that institution. But um, I really did adopt a primarily vegetarian diet while I was there. And uh, that, in retrospect, was certainly a, a large contribution to uh, how I got to be so uh, big and fat and uh, hypertensive. And uh, when I uh, took some of those principles and eliminated uh, a lot of the problems uh, of that diet, uh, I got my health back. So 
So when you talk about eliminating some of the problems, was this, you know, less of a focus on, say, uh, starchy-based vegetable products? And did you start transitioning into more animal-based products? Or, you know, for example, did your concept of healthy fat move from plant fats to butter, for example? Yeah. Um, the, the problem with, I think, the American vegetarian diet uh, and even the American vegan diet is that it's primarily a, what I call a pasta and grainitarian diet. Mm-hmm. And uh, vegetarians and even vegans in other parts of the world uh, don't, uh, who have pretty good health, don't follow uh, those recommendations. And so uh, one of the first things we, we did was, was eliminate all grains and all beans uh, from, from our patients as uh, clearly a food uh, unfit for human consumption. And uh, yeah, so we started with that. And uh, I just as a sidebar, I, I did uh, training in children's heart surgery in London, England. And at that time, a a diet called the egg diet was incredibly popular, uh, where you essentially eat 10 to 12 eggs a day. And uh, long story short, uh, I actually had the lowest weight I've ever had in my adult life uh, when I lived in London, England, doing the egg diet. Uh, So uh, if you think I added a lot of eggs back into my diet, you're correct. Um, (laughs) So what else did you eat besides the eggs? Just out of curiosity, I, I haven't heard of the egg diet, so I'm I'm not familiar with that. It's actually it's actually a very interesting diet. You uh, essentially eat about ten eggs a day. You can eat uh, a lot of non-starchy vegetables, and that's all you eat. And it is uh, it's actually uh, several recent Hollywood stars have used it kind of underground to uh, lose weight uh, and get into shape for movies. So. Uh, it's still it's still around, interestingly enough. But yeah, so what I did was uh, I, I basically said that the only purpose of food was to bring olive oil or coconut oil into your mouth, and that if, that's, if I was going to say that sounds very familiar at a a conference about a year ago uh, when people were asking me about how to eat vegetables. I said, "Well, vegetables are really only a vessel for butter." Was, uh, yeah, and I, yeah, and I think that's I think that's absolutely correct. Um, and and there, you know, we can we can go to some some interesting ex- extremes. I'm sure all of us uh, know a, a wonderful blog called Hyperlipid uh, that's written by Peter. Uh, and and if you don't know, please go there because uh, he, if nothing else, is incredibly intelligent. Uh, he's a veterinarian in England. And uh, also is one of the leading proponents of never let anything but saturated fat past your lips. Um, and uh, he's got some incredibly impressive data to uh, show for it. Wow. I'm wondering how that dovetails with, you know, we don't have the enzymatic system to make some of the polyunsaturated fats that we do need, like DHA and EPA. How do you know how how he rectifies that, or you know how? Well, he's he's not a, a. For instance, when you kind of drive him down, you find out that he actually <clears throat> eats uh, 
a fair amount, maybe 40 to 50 grams a day of resistant starches. And uh, it, it finally came out because I think people kept toying with the resistant starches and he had to say something. And um, anyhow, so he also, I think, is a pretty doggone good fan of DHA. And he'll certainly use uh, fatty fish. Uh, particularly sardines, but he thinks you ought to, you know, throw on a generous dollop of uh, coconut oil or butter. But for instance, his typical breakfast is is about eight egg yolks, and he he takes the uh, whites and feeds them to his dogs and uh, other things. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, my typical breakfast is a couple eggs, uh, about half a pound of bacon. That's before it's cooked. Uh, some fatty pork shoulder and then some sausages, depending on how hungry I am. So, you know, I'm definitely an advocate of a lot of saturated fat. You know, my health is, my blood parameters are incredible. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, I would tend to agree in terms of my only personal um, history as well. I was kind of in the same position as you were in. I was overweight, metabolic syndrome, probably diabetic. And, um, you know, one of the resources I found really valuable initially when I was kind of going down this road was your, your book. Uh, and so it kind of opened up that rabbit hole and really kind of put everything on its head from a standard medical standpoint in terms of what we kind of learn or what we're being force fed, so to speak. So, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting scenario how, um, so many people, um, are kind of coming to this kind of roundabout from the back door. And, um, you know, at least I know, at least from my, my experience with my patients, they're getting really incredible results and, uh, doing very well. And, and obviously we're kind of, kind of going against the system here in terms of what we're recommending to eat. You know, one of the things that, that, you know, always comes up because we're physicians and we're kind of held to the kind of the standard of care is just the notion of tracking cholesterol. And, and certainly, uh, we know that some patients, um, in particular, who go on a let's say a ketogenic diet or a, a diet that's heavily weighted on the saturated fat and have these kind of ginormous um, cholesterol and lipoprotein burdens that they they come on to. Um, what's your take on that, and uh, what do you think should be done about it? I mean, I, and and should these patients be be on statins? I guess why don't we why kind of go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> All right. Um. So statins, unfortunately. Uh, you know, we used to think that statins worked, and and statins do work. Um, but we used to think that statins worked because they lowered LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol. And we used to think that because we'd put people on statins and their LDLs would go down. And you'd look at the literature and the trials and there would be some correlation that the lower your LDL went, the better you did in terms of new occurrence rates of heart disease. But that was before we understood that statins actually work by blocking toll-like receptors from essentially turning on inflammatory cytokines, uh, inflammation. And a great deal of us working in lipids now realize that we were, we were naive, that the effect of statin drugs really has nothing to do with lowering LDL, that's a side effect. And that what statins accomplish uh, is that they block inflammatory signaling. 
And I will use a statin as a crutch uh, until I can get rid of the inflammation, which usually comes from uh, grain and bean-based products and a few other things that, I, that I'll talk about if you want to. And what we see is that these folks, uh, and we measure uh, a large number of inflammatory cytokines in every one of our patients every uh, three months, and we're able to track those inflammatory cytokines. And one of the things we find with a ketogenic mimics uh, a paleo-like diet, whatever that means, is that we, we see these inflammatory cytokines uh, disappear. So once we see that disappear, uh, then we um, usually get rid of the statins. Now, we also fractionate LDL, and there's seven different kinds of LDL. And, and three of them are actually fairly mischievous. They like to oxidize and stick to things. And four of them are actually incredibly good for you, the big ones, the big fluffy ones in the vernacular. And consistently we see that despite having large amounts of these big fluffy guys, we consistently see that the little uh, sticky dense guys go down and down and down. So one of the things I go around the country lecturing to physicians and cardiologists about is that we're looking at the wrong thing. And we should be looking at inflammatory markers and basically how sticky blood vessels are. And then we should be fractionating uh, cholesterol and not be worried. I, I, have, uh, I have some patients uh, who had heart disease who now have total cholesterols of 400 and LDLs of 250. But their small, dense LDLs uh, are virtually non-existent. And uh, you can imagine the cardiologist's chagrin when I show them a repeat angiogram or a repeat stress test that shows no ischemia, uh, whereas they had a lot. So uh, the proof is in the pudding. So, you know, uh, it's, it's interesting because you, you certainly have a different perspective than I would have as a primary care doctor because I don't have the luxury of, you know, taking a patient to the cath lab. But I guess then the question would be if there is no inflammation, and cytokines look great, then does the cholesterol level matter? No. Okay. No, it really does Because, you know, what I found in, in subsets of populations, and even in myself, is that um, I, I'll be on this type of a diet, or patients will be on this type of a diet, they're ketogenic, uh, and they will have really large uh, lipoprotein burdens, ex non-existent inflammation, but when we fractionate their, their LDL, they still have large amounts of, of the smaller mischievous types, as you would describe them. And so that... Yeah, I, I, uh, those folks, I can tell you, if we see those folks, they're, they're usually, uh, interestingly enough, cheese eaters. And um, it's usually... Uh, I, I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. It's usually <laughs> cheese from uh, casein A1 cows. And when we change their cheese, uh, it usually goes down. And uh, that's a, it's a really odd, weird fine point, but uh, I'm one of those people who uh, is convinced that 
casein A1 is, is a real mischief maker. Why don't we go down that rabbit hole since we're here? Can yeah, you kind of go yeah. over that a little bit? We've talked about that on our podcast as well. So uh, why don't you kind of give the rundown? Yeah, so uh, 2,000 years ago, northern European cows suffered a genetic mutation. And uh, the one of the proteins in milk, uh, which uh, was casein A2, perfectly good protein, uh, works just fine. We don't react to it, um, became casein A1. And casein A1 um, is transformed in the human gut to beta caseomorphine, uh, which is a very potent lectin and has a great deal of affinity, among other things, to mimic the beta uh, cell in the pancreas. And unfortunately, casein A1 producing cows are much hardier and they give more milk. So that almost all uh, cows uh, in the world, uh, except for certain localities, southern Europe, are casein A1 producers. And there's some interesting work originally done by uh, New Zealand researchers. Uh, first got their attention because the incidence of type 1 diabetes, juvenile diabetes, has some very intriguing correlation to uh, casein A1 cow milk consumption. And uh, it's interesting, one of my new patients uh, grew up on a farm in northern uh, Minnesota, and they uh, had only Guernsey cows, which are casein A2 cows, but they eventually had to switch over to Holstein cows, which are casein A1, the black and white cow, because the Guernsey cows didn't give much milk and they couldn't make any profit. Um, so, um, Anyhow, it's an interesting correlate. So uh, I try my darndest to have people not uh, use casein A1 uh, cow milk products. And buffalo mozzarella is safe, goat is safe, sheep is safe. Uh, a great number of Swiss cows are safe. Um, a great number of uh, French and Italian cows are safe. Spanish cows are mostly Holstein, unfortunately. So we give them a little map of what kind of cheeses they can have and what kind of cheeses they can't have. And we even get so far as to go crazy. We even make them get butter from French or Italian or goats, uh, goat cows, uh, or from Guernsey or Swiss brown cows. Uh, interestingly enough, we allow them heavy cream, sour cream, and cream cheese, no matter who the cow is, because there isn't any casein in those products. So that... We recently introduced that about a year because everybody was just complaining too much. <laughs> <laughs> so would you so, say you say that exposure to then to that alpha one casein would be inducible uh, in certain populations for insulin resistance then or worsening insulin resistance? Yes, right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm kind of curious with the heavy cream because I know with the um, fat fat membrane, the milk fat membrane globules. It yep. does contain a little bit of casein. Is that, is it not enough of a load to react or is that casein structurally different in some way? Yeah, you really, uh, it's very difficult to pick up Kate uh, and I've, I've looked at several labs looking at it and uh, there's just very minute amounts of, of casein uh, in heavy cream. Okay. Uh, so th that's why, and I, you know, I prefer people get their heavy cream from grass fed cows. Uh, you, you know, you are what you eat and you are what the 
cow weight. But uh, I have uh, several women with rheumatoid arthritis who are, are no longer on any meds who uh, absolutely flare their rheumatoid arthritis when they eat uh, grass-fed yogurt from a Holstein or a Jersey cow. It's actually very impressive. So, Wow. But they're okay yeah. with, say, heavy, with the heavy yep. cream, they're fine. Yep, okay. they're fine. That's... We, we've talked about that before, but we definitely have not gone in that much detail or looked at the correlations between uh, cholesterol and then the, the, the alpha-1 protein versus the alpha-2. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole science as to whether uh, the lipemia is actually a very good thing for uh, transporting uh, lipopolysaccharides, LPSs, mm -hmm. um, safely around our body. And that, that, that's another whole rabbit hole. Uh, there, was a, there was a lot uh, of thought. So that, that would kind of explain the, the postprandial hyperlipemia sometimes we see with mixed meals. Is that, correct. would that be a correct it's, assumption? Okay. That's exactly right. Um, the, uh, Dr. Michael DeBakey, uh, who I knew quite well before he died from Houston, Texas, one of the, one of the f real fathers of, of vascular and cardiac surgery, uh, always used to say that uh, cholesterol had nothing to do with causing heart disease or atherosclerosis, that it was an innocent bystander. And that he was convinced there was an infectious process that was the cause, and that cholesterol was basically ambulances arriving on the sea, uh, arriving on the scene to cart away dead bodies that were involved in a war. And when this lipemia of sepsis was discovered, um, people who are septic or you make animals septic have massive amounts of lipids in their blood. And uh, was, it's called the lipemia of sepsis. And uh, we're now beginning to suspect that uh, those lipids, particularly chylomicrons, are transporting these pieces of bacteria called LPS, lipopolysaccharides, their bacterial cell walls, uh, for presentation to our immune system. And it, so uh, this whole idea that perhaps elevated cholesterols have very little to do with anything but presenting uh, these particles uh, to our immune system is, is incredibly intriguing. And that uh, these particles actually hop on saturated fats. They, they're transported across our bowel wall uh, on these uh, chylomicrons. And so uh, this lipemia may just be uh, a way of showing our immune system these bacterial particles, which are very much a part of us. That's really interesting. That kind of dovetails with some research and study they've been doing on mummified humans from you know, hundreds to thousands of years ago that were even on diets uh, seen uh, up in the Inuit regions uh, where they found signs of atherosclerosis, but 
it was always related to the ApoE4 allele uh, mutation yeah. in that mummy. Uh, and so that's, that's a really, that's an interesting continuation or at least support of, of that idea of that, you know, it's, it's an immune response that really is the contributing factor of these problems. And then that would also dovetail with, you know, my thought that eating these large carbohydrate loads or at least usable carbohydrates, I call them like starches, grains, the things you mentioned, you know, actually increase our immune response in a certain way, you know, make us more, uh, like you talked about, inflammatory. And so I, w- I would assume that would pretty much give you an exponential increase in that activity if you're having starchy carbs all day, every day, like is recommended right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, no, regardless of what you believe, um, no human being up until the dawn of agriculture uh, ever ate grains or pseudo grains or beans. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, and I'm a human evolution researcher, uh, humans were over six feet tall uh, before 10,000 years ago. And our brain size was 15% bigger than it is currently. And we, we don't see any evidence of arthritis in ancient human bones. And some people argue, well, nobody lived long enough, but that's not mm-hmm. true. Uh, but by 8,000 years ago, 2,000 years into agriculture, the average human had shrunk to 4 foot 10 inches. Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. The first explorers to uh, the first Spaniards uh, in the Americas were had an average height of what, like four eleven, I think it was, which yeah. you know wasn't yeah. that long ago. Right. Yeah. The uh, you know the the American Indians who greeted uh, the Pilgrims and the early English settlers were shocked about what tiny and incredibly <laughs> smelly people uh, they were. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. That's hilarious. We were the Lilliputians. Yeah, we really were. And, you know, in all the writings of the, you know, early American settlers were that, you know, these Indians were just huge, robust, you know, incredibly giant, healthy individuals. So anyhow, um, yeah, but this whole, uh, you'd mentioned the APOE4, and I do want to add a proviso that we check APOE4 status on everybody. And about 25, 30% of people carry one or both of the four alleles. And those people, uh, I really strongly feel that animal fats are mischief to those folks. And those folks, uh, I basically put them on a coconut fat, macadamia nut fat, olive oil fat, sesame fat, and I really do limit their uh, animal product use. And with that, we actually follow these small, dense LDLs. And we don't quit on these folks until we get their small LDL particles down. And, and we always do. But you know, this, the, this is the subset of people that I, I do think everyone should know their APOE status and uh, my my personal feeling is that those people, uh, they do not do well. Uh, they should avoid uh, animal fat products as a, as a general rule. Can they have them? Yes. But I, I view these folks, uh, an Asian stir fry, 
where animal products are the garnishment to the to the meal is is more the way these folks should eat. I mean, to assume that uh, fish are going to be relatively safe for these people. Yeah, and believe it or not, I actually use uh, less fatty fishes. I have them get cod and mahi-mahi and haddock and flounder, and I steer them away from some of the fatty, uh, fattier fishes. But I also measure omega-3 statuses on these guys, and uh, we, we actually do push up their DHAs um, quite a bit. But the, the main thing on these folks is, like everybody else, we got to turn off all their inflammatory cytokines. And because oxidized cholesterol really isn't interested in sticking to blood vessels, getting called into action unless there's inflammation going on. Again, I, I, I view cholesterol more as an ambulance uh, rather than an instigator. So. Uh, we had this, we, we touched on this before the show a little bit that, uh, originally your, I guess your first book describing your diet, you wanted it, it was, uh, a heavily ketogenic diet, but you mm -hmm. were steered yes. away from, um, publishing that. Yes. Could you, could you talk to us about why, A, a I'm curious, you know, what, uh, if, if what we've been talking about basically is the, the more ketogenic version of what right. you recommend, I assume a lot of fats, uh, some yeah. proteins, whether they're from animal or plant, depending on the population you're working with, and then uh, a lot of fibrous vegetables. And you were told there just wasn't a market for that, basically. Right. My my editor at Random House had done all the South Beach Diet books and all the Adkins books, and um, so when I when I brought my original kind of list of good foods and bad foods. Uh, she basically uh, accused me of being a cruel, mean bastard. And, <laughs> and she said, well, nobody's going to buy this book. And I, I said, well, yeah, but this, you know, these, the bad foods, these are the foods that I'm taking away from people are what cause disease. And she says, I don't care. Uh, we got to sell books. And so you, you, you got to throw me a bone here. And, and so you can see kind of in, uh, in phase two of the book, we start allowing a, a quarter cup of healthy grains and we allow some soy products and we let people have a few tomatoes, um, which are a fruit, they're not a vegetable and, uh, and so on and so forth. But in, in you and I kind of read between the lines where I, I basically say limit these things severely. We actually had a huge chapter on uh, calorie restriction and intermittent fasting. And I, I, may, I may have been one of the first people to actually publish this in a book. And the huge chapter was cut down to a page uh, <laughs> because my editor said, look, you know, you're going to come across as a nutcase and no one is ever going to think that somebody should go 22 hours a day not eating and then eat for two hours a day uh, because from, from January till June, in general, uh, I eat all my calories from 6 to 8 o'clock at night and I don't eat anything the rest of the day. 
And I'll usually take a break on, on weekends, but that's what I do for a half a year every year. And I did that when I wrote the book. And uh, it's rather humorous that now uh, one of the things that's fascinating about uh, intermittent fasting is that it, you know, it's now, gosh, what a good idea. Right. Yeah. It's mainstream. And there's, you know, yeah. I think a new book out every week about how to intermittent fast in some slightly yeah. different way. Yeah. So, oh, well, I was just a nutcase. <laughs> right. You're just ahead of your time. <laughs> That's right. So in intermittent fasting, um, I think is part and parcel with all of this, uh, getting back to uh, releasing bug pieces uh, into our bloodstream. Uh, I'm I'm a firm believer that the the way intermittent fasting works is not so much the calorie uh, re or reduction, but the fact that when you're fasting, uh, you're not releasing uh, bacterial particles into your bloodstream. And one of the things that really impressed me early on in my research uh, was in a fairly obscure paper in rats where they took a bunch of uh, genetically identical rats and one group of rats would get um, their normal amount of rat chow every day, the exact same amount. The second group of rats would uh, get no food for one day and then they'd get two days worth of food the next day. And so they would alternate every other day, one day fasting, one day, two days worth of food. So that every 48 hours, uh, both groups of rats were eating the exact same number of calories. And the impressive thing is, despite equal calorie loads throughout their lifetime, the uh, rats who are eating every other day uh, live 30% longer than their identical uh, twins who were eating daily. And uh, so it was not the calorie burden. It was the fact that their uh, gut was shut down for 24 hours. And that had a profound effect on me, and it still does. Uh, do you think there there might be some argument there also for allowing the intracellular autophagy systems to run because I know that those will break down a lot of uh, viral pack, uh, viral particles, also bacterial particles that might be in there and dormant uh, and just, you know, essentially allows the cells to clean out and become healthier, clean out some of the junk that might be clogging up the mitochondrial flux, uh, things like that. Do you, do you think there's yeah. like a systemic effect more than just the gut? Yeah, I th think that's uh, a good part of it as well. Um, the, as, as you well know, the, the mitochondria is, is just an engulfed bacteria. And depending on how the cell shuts itself down, whether it's by autography, which is good, or whether it's by apoptosis, which is horrible, right. you, you release, you either release the mitochondrial wall to the immune system, and the immune system unfortunately recognizes this as a bacteria. And since there's, uh, I forgot the actual number, 10 to the 14th mitochondria versus 10 to the 11th cells, you, you're, when a cell dies, it 
makes this incredible burden of bacterial cell wall proteins that we call mitochondrium available to the immune system to activate. Whereas if you shut it down with autography, those proteins are basically involuted and not exposed. So you're right. Uh, if the cell shuts down via uh, a starvation mechanism by mTOR signaling, then you're safe. But if a cell shuts down from wear and tear, you're in trouble. Is this How's why that? we, yeah, no, that's great. Is, is that why we look at uh, creatine kinase levels sometimes to look at uh, apopto apoptotic Hosts. load? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Is, is that, is uh, the creatine kinase, is it recognized as a potential bacteria target or some sort of uh, invasive No, I, I don't think it's been used at that. And, you know, the, the problem is that this part of the field is so rapidly evolving, it's, uh, it, it's almost hard to keep up with, you know, what... What we're looking at when we look at a particular parameter. Uh, I just got back from a meeting in Lisbon on uh, on polyphenols, and uh, the, the chairman of the meeting started the meeting with, uh, "I want everyone here to realize that uh, humans are incapable of absorbing any polyphenol, and there are absolutely no antioxidants in polyphenols, and anyone who thinks differently can leave the room." And, uh, uh, and we've been saying for a number of years that that's true and that polyphenols are eaten by uh, our gut microbiome and that the, the polyphenols and blueberries are actually eaten by your mouth microbiome before they leave your mouth. So, uh, so these sorts of things uh, are so rapidly evolving. Uh, particularly in terms of bacterial processing and bacterial membrane processing and what bacteria do for us, that it's hard, uh, hard to say for sure what we look at on labs and what they actually mean anymore. Yeah, it's, you know, every time I start digging into, especially the mitochondrial stuff, there's so much there. And looking at uh, the carbonylation of the creatine kinase really kind of stuck with me because you know, that will start to cause dysfunction in the mitochondria and then, you know, the mitochondria will shut down and that could either um, trigger oncogenes to turn on or it could uh, trigger apoptosis. And, you know, I was just wondering if that damaged creatine kinase had any potential relation because, you know, when we get to that point when the cell's apoptotic, um, you know, the, the mitochondria has usually become diseased in some way. So I, that, that's why I was wondering if that's even looked at, like the level of carbonylation of the creatine kinase or anything like that. And I, I just thought maybe you, you might have seen something on that, or uh, you seem no, have, amazingly no, well versed. No, I haven't seen that, but I mean, now now you're going to intrigue me. I'll go find out. Um, <laughs> Excellent. But, yeah, I mean the whole idea about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia uh, being a you know, a glial cell problem in glial cells recognition, recognition of uh, bacterial uh, cell wall uh, proteins. Mm -hmm. And that uh, we know that that's a problem and that glial cells will basically uh, protect a neuron till the neuron dies. Uh, right. But one of the intriguing 
things is that maybe the glial cell is actually reacting to mitochondrial wall proteins as the antigen. Oh. And uh, yeah, so uh, we're we're going one step deeper into you know what what antigens we should be looking at, right? Because that's oh, I was going to say that's that's what kind of keeps driving me to support this. You know, we've got to eliminate this starch slash usable carbohydrate load because you know it's the perfect storm. It creates a greater oxidative load, and at the same time it shuts down those cleanup processes, which is, you know, one of the things that can really uh, exacerbate damage to the mitochondrial cell wall. And so I, I started to look at that, like deviations in that, uh, in the mitochondrial wall as, you know, the potential starting point for a lot of the diseases we see. And, and then that would also make sense why diet seems to be this panacea for so many different diseases. You know, you take carbs out and you get positive effects on uh, cancer, you get positive effects on uh, diabetes, on obesity, on Alzheimer's, on Parkinson's. And, you know, if, if it really is that fundamental of a level at the, at the mitochondrial, you know, if that's where it's starting, then it does make sense why, why diet absolutely would be the panacea for just about everything we see right now. Right. And, uh, you know, I just actually uh, got off a, a Skype call, uh, just before our call with um, with a god in India, and um, <laughs> was this Ganesha by chance? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> it was not Ganesha. But um, this guy is a is a guru in India. Who uh, Tony Robbins, who's who's a big fan of mine, asked me to intervene on uh, about five years ago now. And this this wonderful gentleman is 64. He's a god to about 12 million people. Uh, has a number of uh, outposts in the United States. And he had, uh, he was a severe diabetic and had uh, massive coronary disease. And they wanted to do a five vessel bypass on him five years ago. And he was in the hospital. And uh, Tony uh, called me and he said, look, you know, it, it's, it's really not a good thing for God to get a five vessel bypass. Uh, <laughs> true story. And he said, can you help him? And I said, sure. So uh, I, I've actually never met him, but we Skype once a month. And so uh, when I met him on, on Skype, I, I said, uh, so, so you're, you're God. And he said, well, yeah, you know, people say I'm God and, you know, I can cure people. And I said, so, uh, so why don't you cure yourself? And he says, well, you know how this God thing works. Um, I can cure other people, but, uh, I can't cure myself. Uh, you, you need to cure me. And I said, oh, okay, well, as long as we're clear on this. And so <laughs> true story. So anyhow, we, we put him on a ketogenic diet and uh, the he started with a hemoglobin a1c of 9.3 and he had near complete renal failure and uh, terrible uh, coronary disease very positive stress test and it's been a process i must say because um, this guy has feast days and uh, when people come and worship him and uh, bring him godly food. Well, a godly food is a is an Ayurvedic diet, which is you know just a giant starch based diet. 
uh, with pulses and grains. And so we really make some significant progress. And then uh, his lab, and we we check his uh, Singulex labs, uh, interestingly, every three months. And his labs would fall apart uh, during these feast days, which were actually quite frequent. And so after a few years of doing this, uh, I think about a year ago, I said, you know, look, it's like this yo-yo and, you know, you've got to stop doing these feast days. And he says, well, yeah, but you understand that's, you know, our culture and God has to do this. And I said, well, now, wait a minute, you're God, right? And he, I said, God can make the rules, can't he? And he says, well, yeah. And I said, so why don't you make the rules that all your followers have to eat a ketogenic diet, all your monks have to eat a ketogenic diet, and all the gifts for your God have to, you know, be coconut oil. And uh, so, long story short, he did. And I can, we were actually talking about this. His, so his hemoglobin A1C used to be 9.3. His hemoglobin A1C last month was 5.7. Uh, last week it was 5.4. His fasting blood sugar is, I'm reading it off, 70. And his uh, BUN is uh, 21, and his creatinine is 1.0, and his glomerular filtration rate is 77. And he has a normal stress test and hasn't had chest pain in years. So this is a guy who is, you know, so if God can do it, I don't see why anybody else can't do it. Right. <laughs> I, I'm going to assume was, he was vegetarian as well, I assume. Yeah, he was vegetarian. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, we took away all this healthy food that was killing him. And, um, and he's got all his followers on it. And the interesting thing is, um, if you see him on Skype, he's got this, you know, incredibly the the glow of good health that is is very typical of people who eat this way. And when people come and visit him, um, they they say, you know, my gosh, you know, you you have this glow of of, of inner health, and he certainly did not have that glow of inner inner, inner health before. That's so. Uh, yeah. So it's it's a it's a really wonderful story when you can take people um, who were on the dialysis list. Uh, I've had people with uh, BUNs of 150 and creatinines of six, and now their BUNs are 40 and their creatinines are 1.5, and they haven't been on dialysis. And this is you know three or four years later, and most of the things that I have been taught that are irreversible problems are not irreversible problems. Well, that's, that's really amazing and really kind of, uh, I think should hopefully give listeners and listeners who have family members who are sick, you know, at least a bit of support and hope that this stuff can be reversed. Um, you know, it's interesting that, um, this gentleman or this God was having these feast days. And my guess is they're probably more like feast weekends, I would assume. So oh, they're weeks. They're weeks. weeks at a time. Ah, okay. So, you know, this kind of dovetails into, you know, one of the things that I came, I, as I read John's book, Carbonite Solution, was that a, a segmented window once a week as a refeed. Um, uh, what are your feelings of something like that? If you're in a ketogenic state the rest of the time, you think there's any use for that? 
I think yeah, I think it's intriguing, and you know, I've I've read your books, and um, I'm, I guess I'm an addictive personality. Um, you know, anybody who would stay up day after day uh, operating and things like that, you know, is isn't sane. Um, so I I guess what I found with myself and certainly my patients who I'm trying to to wean from the hit of carbohydrates is that I have a number of patients who, um, for instance, bread is so addictive to them that uh, one indiscretion on a weekend or on a trip usually kind of sets the ball rolling and they can't stop it. So uh, I've been... I've been a mean, nasty person trying to kind of hold the line on these folks. On the other hand, there, you know, I think you make some good arguments that maybe we should challenge the system from time to time. Uh, one of the things uh, that would be fun to do is have you get Peter from Hyperlipid and uh, and have a go at it because Peter would uh, would probably completely disagree i don't uh, <laughs> I, 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 i'm not and and probably ron rosedale would uh, completely disagree um do, do you and ron rosedale ever talk about this no we we haven't had a chance to have a conversation about it yet so that that would be an interesting one to get I, i'm well aware of his work and and what he does with his patients too so and i know he's pretty staunch in terms of you know high fat um you know no carbohydrate essentially and yeah, he's he's, 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 he's really big. He's big into anti-aging and really kind of goes that right. line. Yeah, you know, he he's never met a carbohydrate he, he liked. Um, I I don't dislike carbohydrates, but I view carbohydrates as selectively uh, improving my gut microbiome, and I actually choose my carbohydrates as to what I think the literature would suggest. I will do to uh, enhance what I view as friendly bacteria and to suppress uh, what I view as harmful bacteria. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm one of those believers that my choice of fermentable uh, fibers, uh, I, I like to think that the microbiome can duke it out over who can use certain glycans and certain fructans better than others. So I, I think I, I try to have a great time uh, thinking that there's going to be, you know, the ultimate fighting championship every day in my gut. <laughs> and, and, you know, let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> so, so what are those choices that you, you steer toward and steer away from? I mean, I think we obviously know what you steer away from, but what do you steer toward? Well, years ago, um, I uh, I started uh, uh, trying to get myself and my patients to uh, swig uh, a fairly generous amount of balsamic vinegar every day, and I actually have people. I I pour it in a glass of water or some. Pellegrino and uh, make looks like a Diet Coke, and everybody assumes I'm cheating. Um, and I want to balsamic vinegar uh, is really interesting in uh, changing the pH balance of what your gut 
Florisy, and it's the must in true balsamic vinegar. Uh, it has the actual the most bioavailability of resveratrol of, of any compound. Uh, it blows red wine uh, off the wall, same with most resveratrol capsules. So I, every, a couple times a day, I'll have about a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar. And uh, there's some very interesting research that there, the, the gut bacteria, particularly the bacteroides, have an inherent ability to uh, metabolize it better than uh, some of the other gut species, the firmicoids. And uh, bacteroides, um, believe it or not, the cell wall of bacteroides isn't nearly as antigenic as some of our other gut bacteria. So, and if you look, as you probably know, uh, in general, lean people have a much higher uh, bacteroides count than uh, obese people. So I think you can manipulate the gut microbiome uh, through some kind of fun maneuvers. Now, Peter from Hyperlipid thinks you basically ought to starve them to death. <laughs> and, and that's an interesting argument. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't discount that argument. I think probably one of the big effects of the Atkins-type diet and everybody getting so constipated was that you basically had nothing for the gut flora to eat. And since most of our bowel movement is live bacteria, um, I, you can certainly understand why people would get profoundly constipated on a high-protein diet. So, um, yeah, so I actually happen to think since we evolved uh, with our gut microbiome that they're probably good guys to keep around to tell our immune system what to do. But I don't discount the idea that starving them to death, at least for a limited period of time, might not be a bad idea. Yeah, I always kind of have mixed feelings on that for the same, you know, they've got some interesting mouse studies where, you know, they've raised some in a completely sterile environment. So they've got no gut bacteria at all. And they often end up healthier and leaner than their peers that have their normal gut microbiome. And so my thought is, you know, bacteria is just a part of the world and our body learned to adapt and uh, live with, uh, you know, a certain biome and the bacteria, you know, obviously wants to survive. So it learned to live with us. And that doesn't necessarily mean we need it. But since we're stuck with it, we might as well try to make it as beneficial as possible. It's, it's kind of my view. And like you said, we've evolved with it for a million years so obviously it knows how to keep us healthy and that would be kind of that more traditional diet uh, like you talk about here eating uh, more raw foods and things like that you know if you're eating foods that are making your body healthy then the gut bacteria is going to follow suit and keep you healthy as well whereas if you're eating food that is possibly going to make you obese then as we've seen in some research the gut bacteria actually follows suit to help you become more obese uh, so, oh, it, yeah, so it just kind of follows suit there. So I, I could definitely see the the argument for trying to starve off your, your gut bacteria. Um, but, at you know, at the, at the same time, how realistic is that? Yeah, I, not very. Right, um, right. 
because yeah, and it's interesting the the paleo community because this is a a worry uh, now is saying well. Um, it's all the uh, gristle and cartilages that we should be eating that are also that that are the uh, prebiotic for uh, for carnivores, and I, I, that's fine. But my God, what let's let's not reach this hard, shall we? Right, exactly. I think it's you know I I think the paleo community actually does the same thing as modern medicine. They accept. You know, since they're looking at something "quote unquote" more natural, they're unable to separate that what they're seeing is an effect of a poor diet and not what's causing bad health. So they think, "Oh, well, the gut microbiome is out of whack, and that's why we're obese and we're fat." And I was like, "You know, I don't think so. I think it's because our diet is so bad that the gut biome is out of whack. So if you fix the diet, the gut biome is just going to correct itself. So why try to target such minutia when we could just, you know?" focus on the diet and stop talking about all these, oh, well, it's gluten's doing this and, you know, just the gut in general. And it's like, oh, well, it's not gluten, so it must be FODMAPs. And, oh, well, yeah. it's not that, so it must be this. But in the end, you know, they're just going to stick to their guns. Well, it's wheat. We don't know what it is in wheat, but we know it's wheat. Um, right. and I, you know, I think arguments like that are just kind of asinine to me. You know, it's doing the same thing as well. We don't know what it is about cholesterol, but we know it's cholesterol, so we'll just keep trying to target that That's as right. much we'll, as possible. We'll, we'll keep pushing it down until <laughs> right. brains can't think and muscles can't work. And I, I, I'm in this lipid discussion group, and, and we meet uh, on a on a Skype call once a month, and we've got some real kind of right wing uh, lipid guys, particularly from the East Coast, and you know these guys still go that you know you got to get an apoB down uh, which I think an obsolete marker but an apoB down to less than 60 and I'll keep pushing statins on these guys and I'll keep pushing zeti on these guys until that happens and oh by the way their their testosterone falls dramatically <laughs> uh, and I have to put them on testosterone supplementation. <laughs> And and then they convert all their testosterone that I give them to estrogen. So I have to put them on an aromatase inhibitor. And so they're on Arimidex. And so I'm going, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> you're now, you know, using four drugs when you didn't need any to get this number down that has nothing to do with anything. And but this is this is actually how mainstream medicine. This guy is an academic professor at a major university in the East, and this is how mainstream medicine still views this. You know, four drugs are a lot better than coconut oil and a, a big salad. Um, so a day in my life it. in the clinic. <laughs> yeah, 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 and that and as you know, that's what we fight uh, against. But. Luckily, there's a lot of proof in the pudding, and particularly when we track these things, uh, at least in my office, with labs every three months, patients can actually see that, that you know, whoa, you know, where'd my inflammation go? Or more importantly, you know, gee, the amazing thing is all my aches and pains went away, and, uh, you know, I'm my blood pressure is so low, you know, I had to throw this stuff away, or... You know, I'm not on insulin anymore, and they told me I'd always need insulin. And so that that's the sort of thing that 
finally gets back to the regular doctor and, and occasionally one of them will say, well, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's usually the statement that I hear a lot from people who use carbonite and they'll, you know, reverse a lot of their disease processes and they don't need their medication. And that's, you know, that what's amazing to me is their doctor isn't even curious. Their doctor just no. says, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Not, Hey, could you explain this to me? Or, you know, tell me exactly what you're doing. It's, Oh, just keep doing it. Or, or, you know, what I'll get is from the specialist, I'll, I'll get kind of, the, I'll tell them what they were doing and then they kind of go, Hmm, okay. And then kind of dismiss it, but they like the results, right? <laughs> right. I'll give you another great example. Uh, you know, anecdotes or case reports are only of interest to the person who wrote it and the patient. But um, my my mother, who's 88 and a half, uh, almost two years ago now, was diagnosed with a stage three ovarian cancer, and uh, she had an operation, and they her uh, ovarian cancer had spread throughout her belly, and they basically closed her up. And I, I put her on my, uh, on a ketogenic diet and I gave her a lot of supplements, which I happen to think are very anti-cancerous and we won't go into that day, but she, um, was her, uh, markers, her CA-125 was, uh, undetectable normal levels for about a year and a half. And then around January, uh, they started going up and uh, dramatically, and she began to get uh, ascites in her belly, which is what she had had before. And her markers were up, and I said, uh-oh, this thing's loose. So my wife and I uh, drove down to San Diego, where my parents live, and kind of did an intervention. And she had kind of switched from a ketogenic diet to a healthy diet where she uh, had uh, meat was the big part of her meal and the salad was a small part and uh, some breads had snuck back in and my father had talked her into buying some cereal. So my wife and I descended upon her and shoved sour cream and heavy cream and she's a baker and we got her a bunch of... Uh, cookbooks for uh, coconut flour and almond flour, uh, you know, 80% fat cookbooks. And uh, long story short, I uh, just got her tumor markers back a week and a half ago. They're back to normal. Her ascites is gone. I put her on a couple of uh, natural aromatase inhibitors as well. And uh, she's going to be taking a cruise to Alaska in August. So you can, even in a person who uh, got reactivated, once you start reapplying these principles, um, I am firmly convinced that cancer is a metabolic disease. And if you don't give these little guys what they want to eat, um, they can't grow. So, yeah, actually, it, it's funny you bring that story up because I have one very similar. One of my employees, uh, this was last October. He'd come to me, he's like, you know, my mom has stage four cancer, the chemo's all failed, uh, hers was an adenomo, adenocarcinoma started and then spread to the lungs and the liver. Um, mm -hmm. And it's like, well, the, the doctor basically told her she's got another three months. He's like, you know, I, I know you've talked about diet and cancer before, is there anything we can do? 
And I was like, well, there's nothing to lose, so let's put her on a pure ketogenic diet. And that was back in October. In January, her her tumors were gone. And the doctor was, again, the doctor was just like, wow, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Didn't ask, didn't even really care. And then um, she started having some fluid buildup in one of her chest cavities. And what had happened was the lung had been pushed up for so long, it wasn't descending back into the cavity. So she was getting some fluid buildup. They're like, it must be the cancer. And this was just a couple months ago. They're like, it must be the cancer returning. So they did three scans because they didn't believe the results. She's completely cancer-free. And uh, and she's planning your European trip, whereas, you know, she was supposed to be dead by January. And, uh, you know, she's now just, she's so committed to that diet for the rest of her life. She she doesn't want to go back and, you know, eat any breads or anything like that. She's just so ecstatic to have her life back and to be able to look forward to all these things again. Uh, you know, it's just amazing. And it, it really does, you know, more and more of these anecdotal stories are coming out there from people like yourself uh, who are clinicians and researchers and other researchers around the world that I, you know, I, I think it won't be too long before you just can't ignore this information, even at the governmental level. Right. There's, there's actually now, uh, I think at last count, there's 12 clinical trials that are either underway or getting underway on a ketogenic diet for cancer at, at mm-hmm. universities around the country. So it is getting past the, you know, anecdotal level. So um, that's yeah. good. Yeah, I know Dr. Fine and Dr. Feynman are, have a couple trials lined up and uh, Dr. D'Agostino down in Florida, I think, is involved yeah. with a couple as well. So, Dr. G, we're kind of up uh, a little bit over an hour, and we'd love to kind of uh, continue to speak with you, but I'm sure you've got a very busy day. Um, you know, one thing we haven't done was we haven't really plugged your book. So you want to kind of oh, give yeah. us the title of your book and then, yeah, where to get it. And... Sure. It's uh, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, not Revolution, Diet Evolution. Turn off the genes that are killing you and your waistline and lose the weight for good. That was... That's a book speak for it's a diet book, but it's not really. It's actually a, it's actually a longevity book disguised as a diet book. And it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble uh, at your favorite bookstore. And uh, it, uh, it still works great. The next book is on the way. I don't know a publishing date yet, but it's uh, going to contain a lot of what we talked about today. Excellent. This was... Uh... You know, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a great conversation and uh, really appreciate your time today and talking about all these kind of disparate subjects in a way, but, you know, all relate back to health, and diet and longevity. Well, we're, we're interested in like in just about everything we can do to uh, maximize uh, health potential and uh, what you're doing and Rocky, what you're doing is uh, much appreciated. Thank well, you. Thanks. And ditto. Uh, you're a much, much larger voice than either of us at the moment, which is, you know, fantastic. And these are the things we want to get behind and people like you. And, you know, I, I still think the government needs to form a black ops, you know, program to fund people like you under the table to help get them out of this horrible situation that they put themselves in. Well, yeah, I mean, we're the sad thing is, um, as you may or may not know, at the same time Michelle Obama was introducing her exercise program and, and eat right in, in, in the school, 
the Congress and President Obama were inking an agreement with the American Dairy Council to uh, increase the amount of uh, uh, cheese in Domino's and Pizza Hut pizza, uh, even though Michelle Obama was saying, get out the uh, you know, saturated fat out of your diet. And it's like, really? Um, so if, if we could all speak with one voice, that would be, be kind of fun. But um, uh, it's, it's a terrible industry to go against. Uh, I have a, a, a very good friend who uh, was involved with a company that tried to introduce uh, casein A2 milk uh, to the Midwest uh, to about 10 years ago. And it was in grocery stores, and the American Dairy Association drove them out of business. And interestingly enough, um, you may or may not, uh, you probably, hopefully when you're carb loading, you've tried Jenny's ice cream, J-E-N-N-I. No, I have not. I've heard of that. Jenny's ice cream is purported to be the world's greatest ice cream, and it comes out of Columbus, Ohio. And this is a good good thing to end on. It's not a plug for her. I don't know her. But she gets all her milk from a, um, it's all grass-fed cows. And it, it's a place called Snowville Creamery. And just out of curiosity, because it was in Ohio, I actually called them and said, say, what kind of cows do you have? And there was a silence. And they said, just a minute. And this guy got on the phone. He said, you know about A2 cows, don't you? And I said, <laughs> yeah. And he says, oh, my gosh, I've been wanting to talk to you. He says, we're 85% A2 cows, and we're going to 100%. This is a huge deal, don't you think? And I'm going, wow. So this is a plug for Jenny's ice cream. So when you're doing the carb night solution and you're carb loading, Please go find some Jenny's ice cream. It's in specialty <laughs> grocery stores. And I can guarantee you that you will get A2 milk as part of your carb loading. How's that? Awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that was that was a great, great plug to end on. So uh, thanks again, Dr. Gundry. And uh, we'll we'll let you get back to your day. And, you know, thanks again for being on the show. So All right. Another episode of Body IO FM. Thanks everybody for tuning in. You've been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.